0: Brother, this question and how we answer this question is of utmost importance for us. Who is the man Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? How you answer this question will determine the whole trajectory of your life. It'll determine your your eternal destiny in heaven or hell. How you answer this question is of utmost importance. Who is Christ? And as we see in the text, all kinds of different things. People were saying all, all sorts of answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets... That he was essentially just, just another man, just another prophet who had come, maybe even a greater prophet, but he was just another prophet. And I think for us, as we continue our study on the person and work of Jesus Christ, we must understand that to make Jesus common among other men will damn you to hell. He's not just another man. He's not just another prophet. We're going to be looking at today the deity of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is to say that Jesus is truly God, that he is the very nature of God, that he is not made. He is equal with the father and the spirit. He is distinct from them. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and He has always been God the Son, and He will continue to be God the Son incarnate in glory for eternity. And brethren, as we continue, I do want to raise a couple of dangers for us that as we look at doctrine, as we, as our brother laid out for us last week, that Jesus Christ is truly man. And as we look at today that He is God. He is God the Son in the flesh. There's a danger for us. To just, to just get the doctrine correct means nothing. To have the doctrine right means nothing. You could cross your T's and dot your I's and, 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 and be pinpoint and your theological precision of who Jesus is and it will do you nothing. We must understand. We must have right doctrine. But brethren, that doctrine ought to lead us to a deep worship, a deep devotion to Jesus Christ. That is the danger. We must, not, we, we, we must be able to articulate who he is from the scriptures. But if all we do is go out into the streets and we win battles with Jehovah Witnesses and with Mormons and with every other false cult out there, but it doesn't lead us into a love for Christ, we have been wasting our time. You could
1: throw your theology and your doctrine in the garbage. It does nothing to move the heart. It does nothing. We must come
0: to a proper understanding of Christ. And I want to deepen that for you. Because you believe him to be truly man. You believe in him to be God. And I want to encourage you to know more of him. To know more of his glory, to know more of his majesty, to know more of his sovereignty, to know more of his true humanity. That he was a man as our brother laid out before us. He was a man truly like one of us that ought to be so encouraging to us. Let me ask you a question. Have you thought much about that this week? Have you thought much about the reality that Christ was truly man and how that applies to you? Did you give much, much thought to it?
1: I want us, brethren, to understand who He is and what He has done. And, and, and when, we, when we dive
0: into these things, it ought to stir us up. It ought to deepen our worship of Christ. It ought to deepen our, our prayer life. It ought to radically change our prayer life. It ought to radically change how we approach the Scriptures. It ought to radically change how we, how we function and how we operate in this world. It ought to change the way we, we, we fast. We talked about fasting on, 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 uh, on Friday. We ought to
1: be a people drawing near to God through fasting and through prayer. It must change the way we think
0: about bringing His glory to the nations. What would compel someone like the shoemakers to, to, to pack up shop here? to go down to Radius, to be in a foreign context all by themselves, you know, spend $50,000 or whatever it is, at church just to support them to go. Why? Like Aaron said, to put a piece of paper up on their wall? No. For the glory of Christ. That's what motivates people to live for Him. His glory, and that's what ought to be with us as well. We can never be imbalanced in our devotion to Jesus Christ. We can be imbalanced in other areas of theology. We can be imbalanced. But you cannot be imbalanced in your love and devotion and zeal and study and exaltation and proclamation of Jesus Christ. Give yourself to that. Give yourself into knowing Him and to be proclaiming Him. Who is the man? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you've maybe heard this before, but. There are, as C.S. Lewis has uh, said, and other men as well, you have three logical conclusions. Who is Jesus? Your first logical conclusion, and there's only three. He was either number one, he was a liar. He lied. Because he told people he was a son of God. He told people he was a son of man. He said, I and the Father are equal and he purposely misled his followers. He's either a liar. That's your first option. Second option would be, he's a lunatic. Because the man believed what he taught. He said and, and, and proclaimed that he was the only way to the Father. That coming to, going to heaven must be through him and through him alone.
1: He's a lunatic. Guy's crazy. He's mad. Or your third option is that he's Lord. And that all that he said about himself was true. That he is God the Son.
0: That he has come to save sinners. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the
1: Father but by him. That he is ruling and reigning. He is God. And he deserves our worship
0: as the one who has ultimate authority to judge and to raise the dead. Those are your three options and you get no others. So as we begin our, our study here, looking at the deity of Jesus Christ, I want to begin our time looking at Christ before the manger. Before. Before He comes in the flesh. As we, as we confess that He was in the form of a servant. He came as a true man. But we must go before that. We must look to see God the Son's glory before the incarnation. Fli- flip over with me as we begin to John chapter 17 John chapter 17 starting in verse 5 the context here Jesus is about to go to the cross this is his high priestly prayer to the Father it's a glorious prayer worthy of a sermon for every verse undoubtedly But in verse five, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is not a God newly conceived. He was not God just for a short time while he was here on earth. If his glory is eternal, then his person is eternal. We also see explicitly stated that Jesus has pre-existed eternally. Scripture is explicit here. Flip with me to uh, Philippians chapter 2. We confess this. This is, this, is a, this is a great hymn, a great passage, a great confession of the church. Philippians chapter 2.
1: Now, in these three verses, I
0: want you to understand something. That the verbs I'm going to point out, or the or the or the participles I'm going to point out here, they're they're in the present tense, which means that they've always been, continuing to be. So, so so notice now in and, and, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, let's let, let's read here: who, this is Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I want us to pay attention here to the who, though he was in the form of God. Now, if the, the, the original language here, if we're, if we're going to translate directly over from Greek to English, it, it, it would read this way. Who in the form of God existing. do you have the NASB, right? Yeah. Can you read uh, verse 6 there for me? Yes, so he, he's existing, present tense. He's, and we, we, don't, we don't really catch that in the ESV, but it's okay. There's other good translations. We need to be uh, looking at other ones again. But he has been existing, present tense, in the form of God, a very God of very God, from eternity past. He has always been. Look over with me at, at John 1.18.
1: John gives us a good strong case for the Word being God, but I want
0: us to go down to verse 18. Speaking of Christ, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus reveals to us who God is because He is God. And notice here, who is at the Father's side or who is in the Father's bosom. This this is, is in the present tense. He has always been in the closest relationship with the Father anyone could ever have. Christ has always been eternal, pre-existently with God the Father.
1: Look now back, uh, let's go to Colossians chapter 1.
0: This is a passage about Christ and His supremacy over creation and redemption. I want to read verses 15-16. I'll make my point in verse 17. Just too good not to read the whole thing. He, meaning Christ... Is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So the is there is in the present tense. He is before all things. He has always been before all things. Christ is pre-existent. We read in Micah chapter five, verse two, about the Messiah that the Messiah's coming forth is of old, of of how old? From ancient days, and that could also be read from days of eternity. Christ had a glory with the Father before He came in the flesh. These these are explicit. To, his, to, to, to references of Christ's eternal pre-existence. Now, what I want to deal with just really quickly while we're sitting right here is this phrase, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I want to deal with this because this has been a proof text to many cults that Jesus is created. He is the firstborn of all creation, and this has undoubtedly plagued the church uh, well, not the true church, but uh, teaching in the church that has had to be condemned throughout the centuries, beginning with uh, a man named Arius, which we would call Arianism. And Arius taught that Jesus is a created being, that he, he was not eternally God, but that he was a creature. He was made. And we see this now, uh, same thing going on today with the Jehovah Witnesses that Jesus is a created being. And this view uh, in the uh, late 3rd century and early 4th century was condemned as heresy in 325 of the Council of Nicaea. It was also affirmed again in the Council of Constantinople in 381. And in and these, and these councils, the, the bishops and the pastors of these churches got together and, and they started to formulate a doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. And they said specifically with language that he is truly God. He's of the same substance of the Father. He is God of the same nature as the, as, as the Father and the Spirit. Not similar, but the very same. Now, firstborn simply means this. It simply means rank or authority. Now in Psalm 89, chapter 27, you don't need to flip there with me. God says this, I will make him, talking about King David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was not the first king of the earth. He wasn't even the first king of Israel. But he has placed him as the highest of the kings, his firstborn of rank and authority. <laughs> And Christ ranks supreme over all creation because he is the creator. And that's what we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him or in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is the creator. He is the agent of creation. Now, I want to explain something real quick here so we understand is that when we talk about God, God the Father creates through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't do things uh, uh, separated from each other. Every work of God is a Trinitarian work. We see it in creation, or we see it in in, in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks. The Father speaks through the Word. We get the eternal log, the eternal Word, right? John 1. And the spirits are hovering. It's a Trinitarian work. We see this also in Ephesians chapter one, where we see that the father chooses a people. He sends the son to die for the people and the spirit of God seals those people. It's a Trinitarian work. They work all together as one. Jesus, we see here very clearly, is the agent of creation. He creates, he's the creator, and he's the sustainer. He creates and sustains. He
1: is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Brethren, from the smallest atom to the little embryo baby in the womb, to you and
0: I, to the greatest star, planet, galaxy in the entire universe, Christ made it. He is upholding
1: it. We are completely dependent upon Him. He's the one keeping you breathing right now.
0: And He's bringing all of history to its desired end. He's carrying it through. He sustains it. He made it. He governs everything effortlessly. You think of how hard it is to to govern and raise a family. It is, it is hard work and tiring. Think about how hard it is to, to, to run a state or, or to run a country. I mean, you look at presidents and like after four years later, they age like 100 years. It's stressful. How difficult that is. And they don't even do it by themselves. Christ governs all of creation and sustains
1: all of creation effortlessly. Effortlessly. That is glorious. He has a glory before the incarnation. Flip with me now to Isaiah chapter 6.
0: This undoubtedly is a very familiar passage to many of us here. I want to read this for us, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was, was filled with smoke. And I said as Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of Hosts. Now, in this account, what we have is one of the most graphic and vi- and vivid portrayals
1: of God. This is God. He is Isaiah sees a vision here. I saw. He sees the Lord. He sees a
0: visible manifestation of God. He does not see God in His full essence because no one can see God and live; they would die but he gets a glimpse. He gets a glimpse of the glory of God in this vision of of a a vision showing truly who he is. And even a glimpse in a vision is enough to bring Isaiah to ruin.
1: Woe is me for I am undone. Who does Isaiah see? Who does he see? What's the text say? Verse 1, what is, or what is, who,
0: who does he see? He sees the Lord. He sees God. He sees God. And where is God doing? Or what is he doing? He's sitting on a throne. And that throne undoubtedly speaks his unhindered sovereignty and his infinite power to rule. He is governing the nations. He is governing all of creation. He is sitting on a throne. And where is that throne? It's high and lifted up. It speaks of his transcendence as God. His position of as the king of kings. He's above all kings because he is the true
1: king. And the train of his robe filled the temple. This speaks of his royal majesty as king. And in this picture as well, we see these angels, these
0: created beings, these seraphim, the burning ones. They have six wings, and with two they cover their face, and with two they cover their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another. Notice here that they are in the presence of God. And the brightness of the glory of God is so much they must cover their face. They are in the presence of God. They are unworthy to look upon the Lord. These might be one of the greatest created beings that God ever made, covering their face, covering their feet in humility, unworthy to even gaze upon the Lord. And they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. There's none like Him. He is separated from everything. He is creator. He's in a category all of His
1: own. And He, of course, is pure. He's utterly unique. The absolute moral purity of Him. And at
0: His presence and at His voice, there's shakings and smoke and fire and thunder and all these things going on.
1: The entire cosmos is shaking of the voice of Him who called. This is a graphic, vivid, picture of God. Now, flip with me, if you will, to John chapter 12. We'll start reading at verse 36, well, the paragraph there.
0: When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah, notice here, Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. The most graphic portrayal of God in our entire Bibles is a vision of the sun. The son, Isaiah speaks of him. He saw his glory. Who's the he? It's Jesus. God, the son sitting upon the throne. Isaiah saw his glory. Matthew Henry says this. He says, the vision which Isaiah saw was the glory of God and is said here to be the glory of the son, Jesus Christ. He saw his glory. Jesus Christ is therefore equal in power and glory with the Father, and His praises are equally celebrated. Christ had a glory before the
1: foundation of the world, and Isaiah saw it. It was this God who took on human flesh, who became a man, It is this God, brethren, who humbled himself and became a servant.
0: Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was this God in all of his glory who came to save sinners like you and I. Brethren, and to think of it, to think that men spat
1: on him. And men smacked him in the face. And men rejected him. And the Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. That the soldiers mocked him. That Pilate whipped him and scourged him. And to think that they cried out, crucify
0: him and nailed him to a cross.
1: Brethren, how could we have such weak devotion to such a Christ, to such a God as this? How could we be neglectful of his word when it's this God who came to save us? How could we not worship him deeply? with zeal and love in our hearts for him, brethren. How could we not? How could we, how could
0: we have doubts? And how could we uh, doubt that he'll care for us or to be worried about tomorrow or, or, or to be looking to other avenues to find satisfaction? How could we not place our full trust in him? Brethren, you could trust him. Believe upon him.
1: Look to him. He is your God. He is the one who has come to save you, to you and me to save us.
0: Christ had a glory before the foundation of the world, brethren, that this would lead us to worship, to worship Him. No sacrifice is too great for such a God that as our brother gave his great illustration last week, that as the king left his royal throne room and came
1: down and dwelt with his people. A poor man. No comeliness that we should look at him and
0: desire him, that he came for us. That would drive us to our knees
1: to say, what a God. And worship. And serve. That's his glory before, before he laid in a manger, before he was in the manger.
0: Now I want to look to Jesus' testimony of his own glory. Because what's important also, as we think of this, and you know, uh, there was a million ways I could have gone with this sermon, and I wanted to try to hone in on a couple areas, but you know, it's good that there's other people who write of Jesus. And what they write is true. What did Jesus say of himself? What did Jesus declare himself to be? It's it's one thing to declare someone to be God the Son. It's another thing for the man to speak for himself. What did Jesus declare and who he declared himself to be? And I want to show us his use of of the phrase or the word or the name, I am. Now, I want to we're in John's gospel. I want to show us uh, some some verses here about who Jesus says that he is. And he uses this phrase, I am. And so I want to I want to this is unique to John in terms of he has seven of these statements. And we read one of them in our New Testament reading. But let's go to first of John, chapter six, starting in verse thirty five. Maybe you've heard of these before, but I want to shed some light on these. Jesus, John 6, 35, this is the first of these I am statements and metaphors. Jesus says, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, let's go to John chapter 8. So I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now let's go to John chapter 10. So he says, I am the light of the
1: world. John 10 verse 7. We read this one in our New Testament reading.
0: Or, the, yeah, or we didn't actually read this one, but he, we, we have two here. So Jesus said, uh, again, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I am the door, I am the shepherd. Let's now go to John chapter 11, next chapter over. Starting in verse number 25. Jesus says here, he said to her, says Mary and Martha. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Go to John 14. A couple more here. So hopefully you you have this verse memorized. But Jesus says in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And let's go flip the page again, John 15, last one of of these seven metaphor teachings here. We read in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So he is the true vine. So we have, he's the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Now let's go back to John 8. I want to show you a couple more where Jesus doesn't use a metaphor. He just speaks explicitly here. John 8, 24. Jesus is here conversing with the Jews. And in John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, that he is not in the original, but just I am, you will die in your sins. Now let's go down to verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father Has taught me. And in case they didn't get the picture here, look down with me starting in verse 56 of John chapter 8. He says, talking again with the Jews, speaking of Abraham, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, as good Bible readers, we need to ask the question, why are these Jews picking up stones to throw at Jesus? What did he say that made them so angry that they want to kill him? Well, Jesus is making an explicit statement here, and we have got to understand the context of what this I am is. And so we must go back to the Old Testament. So let's go back first to Exodus chapter 3.
1: And in Exodus chapter 3 here, a little
0: context that the, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jews, they were in bondage in Egypt. And God is now raising up Moses to go in and be the one who is going to deliver God's people out of slavery. He's going to be the agent by which he does this. Okay, And we see that God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he starts to tell Moses these things. And Moses has all these excuses why he can't go and do this. And I want to pick up here in verse 13. Then, God, then, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this is drawing back on the revelation of God to Moses that Yahweh is going to save his people And he's going to judge his enemies so that all the world would know that he is God and he alone. Now, we have three names here, and they're all interconnected. We have a longer version. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. That's the longer one. And then I am, a little shorter than the Lord, Yahweh, a shorter one. These are all connected. All of these names are intricately connected. God is a self-existent one. He's dependent on no one. I am who I am. He is immutable in his being and character. God is eternal in his existence. He is. I was talking to Sierra, you know, uh, we talked today, like, when were you born? I was born in October of 1989. That's when I was born. Jesus was not was. He is.
1: God is. He is. He's eternal. The I am is eternal. We must not limit the I am
0: here to just Exodus chapter 3. We see this language all throughout Isaiah. And I want to do a quick skim through some of these verses in Isaiah chapter 40 to 48. And over and over again, we're going to see Yahweh speaking as the I am, the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Speaking of the I am. So let's go uh, to Isaiah real quick.
1: And I want to... I want to look at a few of these statements here. God's use of
0: of the I am. Now, in the context here, Yahweh is saying that he is utterly unique and the incomparable God. In contrast with all false gods who have no power to save. That Yahweh himself assures his people that he will save them. He will have a second exodus. His people are going to be in Babylon. He will save them again. God will save. He is utterly unique and incomparable. You just keep those words in mind. So look at Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 4. He says, Who, this, is, this is the Lord speaking, "'Who has performed and done this, "'calling the generations from the beginning?' I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. There's our language right there. This passage is speaking to God's control of kings and in history. God is going to raise up a pagan king by the name of Cyrus, the king of Assyria, to come and to save his people out of
1: bondage, out of uh, Babylon, out of slavery.
0: (coughs) This is his authority and control of history that he is going to, like I said, raise up Cyrus. He is the first and he is the last. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He reigned of old. He reigns now and he will continue to reign. Now let's go over to Isaiah 43.
1: And I want to read uh, verses 8 to 13. Says, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears.
0: All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed. "'Nor shall there be any after me. "'I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. "'I declared and saved and proclaimed. "'When there is no strange gods among you, "'and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, "'and I am God, also henceforth I am He. "'There is none who could deliver from my hand. "'I work, and who can turn it back?' The exclusivity of Yahweh. He alone is God and he proves it in two different ways here. First, in his infinite and infallible knowledge, God declares beforehand. He declares beforehand. He says, who among them can declare this and show them the former things? Declare what? Declare what God's about to do. He's about to act. He's about to raise up a pagan king to come and to rescue and save his people out of Babylon. Verse 12, I declared. And saved and proclaimed,
1: God does this because He knows. Also, see his, his 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 power to save. I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no savior. There is none who can
0: deliver out of my hand. I work, and none can turn it back. Yahweh is utterly unique and in incomparable. None compared to Him. Look at verse twenty-five of the same chapter i i am he there's that language again who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins now notice that god alone can forgive sins why because all sin is rebellion against god and against god's rule and against god's reign we we've uh you probably know or have heard this anyway in uh psalm 51 david what does he say Against you and you alone have I sinned on this evil in your sight. All sins against God and only God can forgive sin. Now what's really interesting here is if you just read up to the next verse or the one before it, sorry, verse 24, notice here, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities and you would expect him to say, therefore I'm going to destroy you. That's not what he says. Despite their sin and iniquity, he says, I'm going to blot out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is gracious in forgiveness, brethren. Forgiveness is his prerogative. He is a Savior who forgives. We get this. We get this. We get this talk where the God of the Old Testament is this big, mean God and full of wrath and vengeance. And then we get sweet Jesus in the New Testament, you know, carrying little lambs on his shoulder, flowing blonde hair, hands never worked a day in his life. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the Old Testament, we see a gracious God because that's who God is. He is a savior. He is one who's ready to forgive. If we would just but come and repent. And this ought to encourage the people to repent. That's the issue here. But notice the I am. I am he. He's the one who forgives. So come to him. Come to him and find and have forgiveness. Now let's go over to Isaiah 45. I I have about 35 more. I'm just kidding. Just a couple more. But I want, us, I want us to get the, the context here of, of the I am of the Old Testament of Yahweh as he speaks. Look at verse uh, 5 and 8, or 5 to 8 in chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Now the you, just real quickly, if you go back up to verse 1, the Lord says to he has anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. So God has equipped Cyrus, though he does not know him, that people may know. The purpose of this is that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Brother, I heard you pray this at the prayer meeting on on, on Wednesday, if you remember. No? Yeah, you... (laughs) notice here Yahweh is God alone and He alone has the power to create and to destroy I form light and I create darkness and He alone has the power to bring salvation and to bring righteousness He is God and He's going to prove it through His works what He does what God of these false gods that are plaguing the nations, can raise up another king for his own purposes. None. And declare beforehand, this is what I'm going to do. And then do it. None. None, brethren. None.
1: God is utterly unique and incomparable. None compare with him. He is the object of all saving faith. Let's go over to verse 25 and see that in the same chapter.
0: He's the object of all saving faith. Look at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors. This is the last one. You survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. And keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there was no other God besides me a righteous God, and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me in righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He is the object of all saving faith. Turn to me and be saved. Every tongue will swear to him. Every knee shall bow to him. Yahweh is utterly unique, brethren. And the I am is reserved only for him, the Lord, the only true God. It can never be applied to a mere man. And so, when you get Jesus back on the scene in John chapter 8, tell these Jews here that he is conversing with, in John eight fifty eight, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is declaring not only... And he is greater than Abraham, but he's Abraham's God. He is Abraham's God. He is the same in his transcendence over time as Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is the eternal self-existent one. This is Christ. He is the creator who has no beginning and no end. He declares himself to be Yahweh of the Old Testament, come in the flesh as a man. And that's why they pick up stones to throw at him because he, being a man, makes himself equal with God and that is deserving of blasphemy and deserving of stoning. So they try to stone him. But it is clear. Jesus is not unclear. He says clearly who he is and he proves it in his works. He shows the people that he truly is God. That is who he has declared himself. So all these I am statements, and I, I wanted to go through a couple of them, but we would be here for a while, so I, I, I didn't actually go through any of them. But they deserve their own sermon. But listen, this is important. You need to be reading your Old Testament. Okay? All of this has a context. And we can't understand who Jesus is declaring himself to be as the good shepherd and, until you understand that back in Ezekiel 34, Yahweh said he would come and shepherd his people. But then we also read that his servant David would come and shepherd his people. So who is it? Is it Yahweh going to come and shepherd his people? Or is servant David going to come and shepherd his people? The answer is yes. Yes. The Messiah, the son of David, a man is going to come. And Yahweh is going to come. And Jesus tells us that these two prophecies merge together and are fulfilled in him. He is God in the flesh as the Lord in Christ come to save his people. That's just a little a little teaser for, for, for John 10. I am the Good Shepherd. I'm not going to preach anymore, all right, on, on those, but, they're, but but they're worthy of their own sermon, each of those I am statements, and in all of them, he's declaring that he is the God of the Old Testament. Emphatically,
1: clearly, non ambiguous, very explicitly, he is God. Now, brethren, finally, I want to look at his glory after his ascension
0: and exaltation. Jesus had a glory before the manger. He had a glory as he walked as, as, a, as a true man and truly God on this earth, declaring himself who he is. And after his ascension, after his resurrection and ascension, he has a glory to rule as king. Go to
1: Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 20.
0: Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20. That he worked in Christ, this is God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. Christ at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, God the Father put all things under His feet, the Son, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. God, Jesus as God the Son incarnate, The God-man now rules and reigns as king on the throne in glory now. And brethren, he demands obedience from the people. As the king, he commissions out his church into the world in Matthew 28, and he commands all nations that we would teach them to obey all that Christ deserves. He is a king worthy of, 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 of full obedience. And he enables obedience through the Spirit. And as king, he triumphs over his enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Go to, over with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 24. Speaking of Christ, he says, Paul laying out here, Then comes the end when he delivers, that's Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put... All things in subjection under his feet. Christ has bound the strong man. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the the, the ruler of this world be cast out, Satan. And Christ will now draw all peoples to himself. He must reign until he puts all his enemies underneath his feet. Christ is reigning triumphantly. He has destroyed the works of the devil. He has atoned for sin. He has defeated death in His resurrection. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And then the end comes. Christ returns. All of these things bear witness to His deity and glory as God the Son incarnate sitting on the throne ruling and reigning now. Also, we see His authority in resurrection and judgment. And listen, the Old Testament is clear on this. That God alone has the authority of judgment and resurrection. That He alone, that God alone has the power to raise life. And that He alone has the authority to assign to each person, whether they're going to heaven or hell. It's all dependent upon Him, their eternal dwelling. And we see this. We see, uh, we'll just look at at, at one verse here. Let's go to Psalm uh, 96. That judgment is reserved for God. Psalm 96. Let's read uh, just... the uh, 12b, I guess, the sentence begins in 12. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. God alone is the judge and has the authority and power of judgment. And He has power over life and death. Let's go to uh, Hannah's prayer. Anyone know anyone know where that's at, ladies? You guys have been studying Hannah. <laughs> first Samuel two. <laughs> Close, that's all right. We're in first Samuel. First Samuel two. Hannah's prayer. I want you just to I want to draw our attention to one thing that she says here. That is unique of God alone in resurrection and judgment. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's prayer. Look at what she says and prays in, in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. God alone has the authority to bring down to the grave and to bring up from the grave to give life. He and He alone. And you know what we read of Jesus? Jesus says in John chapter 5, I know we're flipping around here. Go go to John chapter 5. Uh, starting, Starting in verse 23 or 21, excuse me. So we so the Old Testament's clear that God alone has the authority and power of judgment, of resurrection, to give life, to raise from the dead, to make a new
1: creation. And look at what Jesus says, starting in verse 24. For as the Father raises the dead
0: and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word... Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and glory, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, to be damned forever. All of this is in in the power of Christ. And as Jesus calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb for four days, come out. So He now calls each and every single one of His people. To come to life spiritually as he called you by name, as his sheep. He gave you life. He gives life to whomever he will. Christ has this glory now. And we read in Second Thessalonians, you don't need to go there, chapter 1, that Jesus will bring and inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And we read what Peter says in Acts chapter 10. That Christ is appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Jesus has the authority over the eternal destiny of every single person. They answer to Him. That's why we see passage after passage after passage. You think of Psalm 2. Submit to the Son. Kiss the Son. Bow the knee to King Jesus. Lest you perish quickly in the way, lest his wrath be quickly kindled. Whose wrath? The Son's wrath be quickly kindled. And also, the all-encompassing worship of Christ as the resurrected and exalted Son of God, that as King, he is the object of worship. You ask any of our kids around here, what's Deuteronomy 6.5? We'll tell you. That's the Shema. And the Jews would recite this twice a day. Verse 6 and 4. But the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Yahweh is the one true and living God and He alone is the proper object of worship. But what do we see with Jesus? We see Jesus in the Gospels receiving worship, accepting worship. As he calms the storms, his disciples in the boat worship him as one who has power over the waves and over the seas. And after Jesus ascends into glory as the exalted God-man, his praise and worship intensify through the church. And we'll end here, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2.
1: passage that we read as we confessed brethren starting in verse 8 and being found in
0: human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death Even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God the Father has highly exalted Him, the Son, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father exalts God the Son back to His glory on the basis of His obedience as a man going to the cross. And He's given Him the name that is above every name for the
1: purpose that all creation, all nations, all peoples would worship Him and adore Him
0: and give him the proper honor due to his name. And we read this in Isaiah 45, where Yahweh himself said he would come and save his people and that all the creation would submit to him and confess him. And Paul here very clearly applies this to Christ. That God the Son incarnate, truly God and truly man, distinct from the Father and the Spirit, equal in power and glory, reigns now over all creation from His throne in heaven.
1: And He is worthy of our worship and our devotion because He is God. Church, what do we do with all of this? What do we do? We have seen Jesus' glory before the incarnation.
0: We have seen who he has declared himself to be while he was on this earth. We have seen his glory. After the ascension, he's been exalted. All judgment and and resurrection life are in his hands. He is the object of worship. Every knee, every tongue must come and confess to Jesus Christ that he is Lord,
1: that he is supreme, that he is God of all creation. What do we do? Well, we stand in awe. We stand in awe of who He is. We dwell upon His glory. We worship, brethren. That's the application for us. We worship and we obey Him. We lay down our lives
0: for Him. We take up our cross and follow after this God. The one who made you and came down to earth to save you. To take upon himself the wrath and judgment that you and I deserve. He took it upon himself. He saved you from himself. And brethren, we declare, we declare the nations need to know who this God is. He is their Lord. He is their King. But they are in active rebellion against Him. They need to know. Billions, brethren, billions of people are dying and perishing for lack of knowledge. We take this Christ out to our neighbor. We take Him to the abortion clinic. We take Him to the nations and declare that He is Lord. And that you, unless you believe that He is, you will die in your sin. We must Believe that there is no salvation apart from him, Acts four twelve. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You must go out and proclaim Christ. And you must contend. You must contend for the faith. You must contend for true biblical doctrine. You must contend for the, for the, uh, for the, for the truth of who Christ is. Truly man and truly God.
1: And all people must submit in loving, worshipful obedience and declare that he is Lord. For the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.